the black neighborhood in the West End was confined to work, some degree of worship, the ability to achieve, uh, and, um, you know, a regard for uh, excellence. Ralph Moon, a retired educator, grew up on Dayton Street during the construction of I-75. I was born in the West End in 1948. Whoa. Yeah, I got a lot lot of experience. (laughs) You got that right. Hear his story on our fourth installment of the West End Stories Project. I'm Key, branch manager at the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library. Thanks for listening. Mr. Moon was the middle child of five and the first boy. I was born in the West End in 1948. My father was a cement finisher and a brick mason. My mother, you know, used to, you know, just do um, labor work. She, when she first came here, uh, she worked uh, as a waitress in a restaurant inside the what's now the uh, Union Terminal. My parents were both Southerners. My mother was uh, born in Alabama, and my father was born in Georgia. My father's side of the family came to Cincinnati in 1941. Um, my mother came to Cincinnati um at the suggestion of an older first cousin she had and so as fate would have it they met um in uh, they wound up uh, worshiping in the same church his parents met at old new prospect baptist church the church was located on Clinton Street, all right? Now, Clinton Street was a street at one time ran from west to east or east to west, starting at Central Avenue and used to run all the way down to Freeman Avenue. It ran parallel to what's now Ezra Charles Drive, which at that time was called Lincoln Park Drive. My grandfather, the one I knew before I met my biological grandfather, pastored New Prospect Baptist Church from 1941 to 1961. So my father was the stepson of Reverend Collins. Yeah, coincidentally, uh, my, when my mother came here, um, she came here at the behest of a first cousin she had who had come to Cincinnati uh, probably 10 years before she got here. And uh, coincidentally, they joined New Prospect. I mean, as a coincidence. And then my father, being the stepson of the pastor, Oh, I forgot to tell you this. My father, aside from being an accomplished brick mason, 
was also a superb piano player. So he played piano for the inspirational choir uh, for seven, you know, for several years. And at that time, you, it mostly Baptist churches, especially, they had the gospel chorus, which was the older women, and then there was the inspirational choir, which was the young folks. And uh, so he used to do that. And, you know, I mean, let's be honest, I'm sure that him playing the piano might have been something very attractive to my mother. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, how things happen, you know. So um, I guess he probably made his intentions known and they hooked up from there. And here I am in the story. <laughs> I love the way you explain things. <laughs> Very well, captivating. I- I try and I try and explain things to, uh, to um, in such a way that people get a clear picture. So a lot of time when when some people explain stuff, they don't explain it clearly, and then you got more questions than answers after you you know you tell somebody something. His family moved from York Street to Dayton Street in 1950, and he attended Heberly Elementary School on Freeman Avenue. During that era, in other words, I started in kindergarten in 1953, and I exited to junior high in the fall of 1960. So Heberly is the only elementary school I attended. It was indicative of schools um, during that era. A lot of emphasis was placed upon fundamental skills and discipline. At that time, there was corporal punishment in school, such that if you did certain things you didn't have any business doing, they swatted you. And the difference in then and now, most of the parents uh, were transplanted Southerners who had a value system predicated upon punishment. And their position was when you went to school, you went to school to learn something. You weren't up there to be a clown or a comedian or disruptive or anything like that. And if the teacher had to call home to your parents. You just couldn't afford to deal with the consequences of that. Or if your parents found out that you got swatted, you could, in fact, wind up incurring another corporal punishment when you got home. Hence, this was a great deterrent, you know, And uh, it extended outside the walls of the school. The community operated on that basis. In other words, if the next-door neighbor saw me doing something I had no business doing, they had a complete license to stop you, or they even had a license to whoop your butt because 
your parents took the position if, you know, Miss Jones or Miss Smith or somebody next door had to resort to that, then you didn't have no business over there or doing what you was done anyway. His mother was part of the PTA and helped raise money for the school. The parents during that era were of the mindset that there is no free lunch. And most of the schools had PTAs, and they would have fundraisers. Now, Heberly's proximity made it close to, it was a pickle company and um, a sausage place. And then years ago, Khan's Meats was down on Spring Grove Avenue. So they would solicit the businesses for contributions, hot dog stuff like that. And Heberly used to have a carnival. Now, when I say that, on the front school grounds, they used to have a Ferris wheel and, uh, you know, a merry-go-round and a whole lot of other stuff like that. And the funds raised from those events were used to purchase the textbooks and materials that the kids needed because those people knew that the budget from the Board of Education was never going to have enough money to reach those inner-city schools and provide better resources for the children. So they raised the money themselves. So the point being, my mother and the mothers in the neighborhood especially participated in the PTA and heavily had a carnival, uh, I think you call it a white elephant sale, and a bazaar. And after they would raise the money, they would sit down with the principal, which enhanced his position as an administrator, and it gave him a adjunct uh, group that would raise funds for his school. That's a key component because what happens is in your more affluent schools, they're affluent because of the participation and generosity of the parents, along with, you know, other relationships with businesses and commerce and things like that. And that is missing today. Heberly was responsible for sending a lot of West End students to Wanna Hills High School, and Mr. Moon was one of them. The faculty at Heberly, when I went there, was dedicated toward qualitative education. And the teachers would, you know, straight up just tell the parents, if your child passes this test, please send him to Walnut Hills High School so he can further his education at another level. And Heberly 
wound up being really a launching pad for for a ton of West End students that went on to Walnut Hills High School. So, uh, case in point, in September 1960, right in the 1100 block of Dayton Street, myself, Henry Durand, and Patrick Allen, we lived in the same block. We all started Walnut Hills High School in the seventh grade, right in that same block. We were all heavily kids. Now, what I found out later, the other sister elementary schools had a couple people like that, too. So Walnut Hills has a history of West End kids going to the school. Now, remember, everybody who went passed the same test. So aptitude is not an issue. I wound up being a retired teaching professional. Henry wound up being um, a Ph.D. who ran a program at the State University of New York at Buffalo's campus before he passed away. And Patrick wound up being the chair of the psych department at a community college in Maryland. Right from the same block, the staff was acclimated to making sure that they developed every possible child they could. And I miss those people. And I'm sure all of them have passed on. And if there was ever some people I would like to speak to seeking advice and seeking, you know, uh, a whole other litany of questions would be uh, my elementary school teacher. Some of his fondest memories are of playing baseball on Heberly's school ground, where he excelled as a third baseman. The proving ground for baseball wound up being most of the time on the school ground. And uh, playing uh, baseball on the back schoolyard was a valuable experience that went beyond sports. Saturday morning, somewhere about 11 o'clock, something like that, everybody started trickling up on the school ground. Soon there was enough people to divide into two teams. Uh, someone would simply declare, I've got first twos, and the other person says, okay, I got second. And then whoever was, you know, whoever had first twos chose their first teammate. And then on and on and on and on. Now, here's why this is important. If, in fact, you couldn't play very well, then you would know why you never got chosen. So, why is that important in life? Well, maybe you need to be a doctor or a lawyer, <laughs> but the sport 
is for those who can fundamentally play. And that's a lifelong lesson. In other words, if the objective is to try and win or accomplish something, and it requires a team, if you can't play, it, it really isn't personal. <laughs> How can you win if you if you can't play? I quickly learned on the school ground that if you had not exhibited the ability to play, you couldn't expect to be chosen if that particular day there were the better players on the school ground. Now, there was also another pecking order. The older guys played first, and after they played, then they gave way to the, the younger kids on the school ground. So first of all, we got to watch the guys that were older than us play. So it was automatic mentorship. So I got to watch the guys that were five or six years older than me. Many of them were drafted into Major League Baseball. So I got to see right there on that school ground guys who really could play. Best mentoring is somebody who actually can execute what you're trying to find out. In other words, um, I lived around the corner from uh, a family whose last name was Wynn, W-Y-N-N. One of the uh, children in that family, who was six years older than me, name was Jimmy Wynn. When Jimmy Wynn finished high school, he got drafted by the Houston Astros, and he played in Major League Baseball about 17 years. I mean, I saw him at 16 years of age playing baseball on heavily school ground. And it was nothing for him to hit the ball completely out of the schoolyard. Now, that what that means is, and this is important for a youngster, if you've never seen anybody who really could do something, then who's your role model? You got to watch, I mean watch, look at not 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 a you know a film clip or um a DVD and nothing like that. You literally got to watch someone who could fundamentally play baseball and the nuances of the game. That's what's missing today. When I saw Jimmy Wynn play on the back school ground and I saw him hit a ball out of the school ground across the street, obviously that was an incentive. You know, I want to be able to play or hit at that level, you know, and stuff like that. People uh, clung to, supported and and was glad to see someone who made it. The cohesion, the ethnic cohesion in the West End at that time, that was the spirit of 99% of the people. 
Stay tuned for part two of Mr. Moon's episode, where we chat more about baseball and changes in the West End. The West End Stories Project is brought to you by the Cincinnati and Hamilton County Public Library and is co-produced by your host, Key, and our grants librarian, Kent Mulcahy. If you like what you've heard, listen and subscribe to West End Stories Project wherever you get your favorite podcasts and share with a friend. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.